Thank you very much for that worship and song. I hope you're encouraged this morning. I invite you to turn into your scriptures to Mark chapter 1. Our text this morning is technically more than just the four verses that was read earlier. Uh, We're actually going to be hoping in the time remaining to cover the rest of Matthew, or excuse me, Mark chapter 1. Verse 16 down through verse 45. That may scare you. I hope it doesn't. (laughs) Uh, We're going to be looking at these verses in two different sort of perspectives. Uh, We're going to be looking at it in one perspective this week. And then in two weeks from now, when we come back here after the church picnic, we're going to be looking at the same set of verses in a slightly different way. And I was struck by that in my study this week of just how much is here In the book of Mark, especially in this first chapter, there's lots of things that the Apostle Mark here includes in his gospel account. We noted at the beginning of Mark's gospel, as we uh, have sought to study this book, that Mark has a propensity for using the word immediately throughout his writing. Words like immediately or other synonyms like you'll notice in this chapter, words like forthwith or straight away uh, are here to sort of give this gospel a sense of urgency, a sense of pace. It moves quickly. This narrative is a continually churning forward narrative showing us, presenting us, bringing our minds to focus on one thing, namely one person, Jesus Christ. This is Mark's goal. This is Mark's intent. He is always seeking to bring our attention to Jesus. Look really quickly with me this morning at these verses here. Look at verse 18. And I'm just going to highlight all of the uses of this word immediately or straightway. Look at verse 18. He says, In straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. Look at verse 20. And straightway he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants and went after him. And they went into Capernaum, and straightway on the Sabbath day he entered into the synagogue and taught. Look at verse 29. And forthwith, that's the same word, when they were come out of the synagogue, they entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Look at verse 31. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And immediately the fever left her and she ministered unto him. Look at verse 42. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy departed from him and he was cleansed. And he straightly charged him and forthwith sent him away. You notice all of those terms there mean the same thing immediately. It's changing your sense of the narrative that things are moving at a rapid pace. But also he's rapidly keeping the main thing the main thing. He's keeping Jesus front and center. This is indicative of Mark's entire gospel. We noticed that uh, two weeks ago or so. This is our third week as we study this gospel of Mark. And this idea that Mark is using these terms to uh, note the action of the Lord Jesus. Not just the teachings of the Lord Jesus, but his actions. Is It'll make sense if we remember who perhaps it is he's writing to. If you remember, we pointed out that it is likely, and we don't know for certain perhaps, but it is very likely that Mark is writing this gospel to the believers in Rome. Now if you know the Romans, they are uh, sort of unimpressed 
by pedigrees of biography or genealogy. They're conquerors. They could care less about who their parents were as long as they were doing what they thought that the conqueror should do. They were more concerned about action as opposed to diction. Such is why it makes sense then. If Mark is writing to the Romans, he focuses on the action of the true and the better conqueror. One to whom the Romans could look to who has done everything and more for them. They wouldn't be impressed by words. They would be impressed by actions. Such as why Mark is continually keeping the actions and the accomplishments of Jesus front and center. This is Jesus the Savior. As we noted a few weeks ago. The unexpected conqueror. Because he's not a conqueror who rules by dominion or force. He's a conqueror who comes and serves. He's a conqueror who comes and dies. This is Mark's intent. Keeping the actions of Jesus front and center. And here this morning, we, I think, I want to see, I want to show us some of the sudden, the immediate ramifications of Jesus' ministry here in this first chapter. Notice quickly this morning, in verses 16 through 20, we have instant commitment Instant commitment. Look again at verse 16. Now as he, that is Jesus, walked by the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. Jesus is In the beginning stages of his public ministry, he has been baptized by John. He has been uh, put upon by the Spirit after his baptism. He has entered the synagogue. He He is beginning his public ministry of preaching and teaching. And here we are given the account of Jesus calling his first disciples to follow him. Come follow me. It's an invitation into close, personal discipleship with the Lord Jesus. It's a calling to come beside him and be intentional about their lives. And there are several things I think that we can note here that are worth our time. Notice who he is looking for. He's looking for willing disciples Jesus is looking for people who are ready to follow him. But I think what strikes me the most odd is where he's looking for these willing disciples. Among fishermen. Among men of the harbor. Men of the docks, you might say. And this is indeed an odd place to find faithful disciples. Because fishermen in this day did not enjoy a very high social standing. They weren't well looked upon, well received. They weren't considered the well to do. They would be looked upon with derision. Perhaps with undesirable looks and remarks. They were considered unclean individuals, much like shepherds. They weren't viewed as people who had strong pedigrees or strong resumes or people with whom you would want to associate. And in fact, it makes even less sense if you are Jesus, you are a person who is is starting a movement per se. You're starting something that is to be grown, that is to uh, uh, to sort of turn the world upside down. The least likely person you're going to recruit for that team is a fisherman. You wouldn't want someone like them on your team. 
It would make more sense if you had gone to the temple and recruited one of the scribes or the Pharisees, recruited one of the lawyers who were well-versed in the scriptures. But no, he doesn't do that. He recruits fishermen. He recruits men who perhaps were simple. They lacked mental acuity or social superiority, but their willingness to follow Jesus outweighed all of that. They were willing to follow Jesus. He was less concerned about their societal approval rating than he was their surrender. And here we can very see clearly that they were surrendered to Jesus. They were confronted by this man of authority who possessed the authority of God the Father himself. And they surrendered to that authority. Such is the lesson for us. We don't have to be worthy in order to serve the Lord Jesus. It's not about worthiness. It's about willingness. Are you willing to be served, to serve the Lord Jesus and to be used by the Lord Jesus? Is your heart willing? But notice also too, who is doing the seeking? Look at verse 16. Now as he walked... By the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. Verse 19, and when he had gone a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the ship mending their nets. See, this is an interesting point to note. Jesus is the one who is walking and, and searching out, seeking these disciples. He's seeking people to whom he can commit his life, to entrust his truth, and to bring into his mission. Because not only, uh, this is the strange thing, not only does Jesus associate himself with these sort of unwanted individuals... He is the one who is seeking out these individuals. He is putting himself out of place in order to seek out these whom he can teach. This was opposite of the customs of the day. Customs in this early first century day would dictate that those who were desiring to be discipled, desiring to be an apprentice of a master, would seek out the master. They would seek out a teacher. I want to be learned in this new way. I want to increase my knowledge. I want to be a part of something better than me, bigger than me. Jesus flips the script. He is the master that goes out in search of his students. He is the teacher that goes out in search of willing pupils. He goes out in search of them. He is seeking them out. And this my friends, is the essence of the divine mission that God goes after individuals. He goes after us. He goes after sinners. And much like he does here, he searches them out and he gives them a higher, a holy calling, such as what he has done for every single sinner here in this room. He has searched us out. He has given us a high and a holy calling to be a part of his gospel truth. He goes on the hunt to retool people who might be considered useless, to retool them and remake them to be instruments for his mission, instruments for his purpose. And this is the real marvel of grace, is it not? 
This is the, the marvel of grace is not only that it saves bumbling, broken sinners like you and like me, but that it enlists and it employs those very same bumbling, broken sinners to showcase and be representatives of that grace. Isn't that amazing? He hasn't called down an angel to speak his truth. He hasn't, called down a, uh, he hasn't called down Michael, the archangel, or Gabriel, his messenger, to speak the gospel. He has chosen broken people like you and like me to speak his truth, to speak his grace. He calls people here, people who need the truth of redemption to be made real in their lives, to be his primary agents to speak of that redemption to the world. God calls people who need his grace to be people of his grace. To speak of that grace. Is there anything more amazing? I don't think there is. That he calls us. He comes out in search of us. And he calls us and he employs us with that mission. Such is what he's done for all of us here this morning. But notice also quickly. Notice who is the one who is making them. Into these fishers of men. Notice again verse number 17. And Jesus said unto them. Come ye after me. And I will make you. To become fishers of men. I will make you. Jesus is giving them a calling. He's giving them a mission. He's giving them a mandate for which they can spend their entire lives. And he's not leaving them out to dry. He's giving them the ability to fulfill that which, which, with which he has called them to do. They were not left to their own devices to do this mission. They were given Jesus' very words. He was going to make them into fishers of men. They didn't have to make something of themselves. It was Jesus who was doing that work. And neither are we entrusted with anything that we are not also equipped by faith to engage and endure. God has given us a holy calling and he has given us the strength and the courage and the grace by faith to fulfill that calling. He has given it to us in his word. Jesus' very words would make them to fulfill his commission for them. He was the one that was going to be behind and before and underneath all of their activity in this calling. And notice then also too, very quickly, notice who gets the focus here. In this scene of instant commitment to Jesus in his way, notice who is the focus. Look at verse 20, or excuse me, verse 19. And when he had gone a little farther thence, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the ship mending their nets. And straightway, immediately, he called them. And they left their father, Zebedee, in the ship, and the hired servants, and went after him. You notice here something very strange to me. There's a stunning, there's a remarkable lack of detail About the sacrifices made on the disciples part. You notice that? Here Jesus is calling them out of their life. Out of their occupation. Out of their homes. Out of their families. And we are not given one word about the emotional turmoil that this might have caused in their families. We are not given any ounce of detail about the grief and the decision making that they made. 
There's a passing remark to the father of James and John. But we are not given any details as to their incredible sacrifice. And it was an incredible sacrifice. They were leaving stable jobs. They were leaving steady routines. They were leaving faithful families and friends in order to follow this teacher from Nazareth of all places. He has called them and they obey. And we are not given any sense of what they sacrifice to follow him. And this, my friends, is not to diminish their sacrifice, not at all. It's meant to bring us into focus on the surpassing worth of Jesus. He is worth any sacrifice you and I can make. He is worth any, all of our lives. He is worth it. He's worth us aligning ourselves with Christ and his church and his gospel. He is worth the sacrifice that that entails. That perhaps we have to leave jobs or leave friends or leave people behind or leave uh, pleasures behind. Leave uh, practices and habits behind. He is worth that sacrifice. The focus is on Jesus as it ought to be because he is worth it. He is worth The surrender that we make. And it is a surrender. The work of those in the church is indeed work. But it's work that is worthy of the one to whom it is working for. That is Jesus. This is the crux of all discipleship. The crux of these disciples here was Christ at the center. This is the crux of our lives as disciples too. Christ at the center. He is not something that we add to our life. He is our life. Jesus isn't something that we work into our lives, add to our schedules, add to our calendars, make sure that we fill in all of the blank spaces we can with Jesus. He is the center from which our life should be ordained and ordered and regulated. Christ at the center. The life of these disciples, life of us as well. And I think from all this we learn that Jesus has authority over our present life. He has the authority to come into our lives and say, I want you in this mission. I want you to do this calling. He has that authority. He has the authority to graciously invade our lives and give us a new purpose. Such is what he's done to these fishermen. He is beginning to declare the nearness of the kingdom of God. He's proclaiming his kingship, his messiahship, and he's also here claiming the right to your throne. Look at verse 15. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Repent ye and believe in me. Renounce your kingdom and believe and entrust your life to mine. He has that authority. He's the king of your heart, the ruler of your life. And he did not come into this world to make your life work. He came to employ you in his work. He came to enlist you in his mission. He didn't come to make your life better or to make every day live like it's a Friday. He came to live and make you into his work, to employ you into his service, to give you a mission that comes from him. 
He has that authority. Your life, then, is not really yours. It belongs to God. It belongs to Jesus. This is, this is what Jesus comes here and asserts. This is what he asserts elsewhere in the Gospels. That, that those who are clinging so tightly to their lives will miss the fact that their life is not really theirs. It's Jesus's. They are here to be used of him. Follow me, Jesus is basically saying. I am your life. And when confronted with this authority, they instantly commit themselves to the Lord Jesus. When they're confronted with this amazing message, they commit their lives to him. What is your response to this same message? We are given the same calling here before us. What is our response? But notice, in the rest of the chapter, I'm not going to read all of the 24 verses, but verses 21 through 45. Not only is Jesus' actions have a result of instant commitment, but also here in these verses we have instant cleansing. In these verses 21 through 45, we have for us recorded four instances of Jesus healing people. Three of them on a very close, individual, personal level. And then one scene of Jesus speaking and cleansing a multitude of people. Notice verse 23. It says, And there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had torn him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Then in verse 29 through 31, after this cleansing, this time of preaching and, and teaching in the synagogue, and then this miraculous exorcism, Jesus then moves and goes into Simon Peter's mother-in-law's house. And there that he's made aware that Simon's mother-in-law is bereft of herself. She is sick with a fever, it says in verse 30. And he touches her and he, he heals her. It says in verse 32, or excuse me, verse 31. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And immediately the fever left her and she ministered unto him. And very quickly the news is spreading of Jesus cleansing people's lives. Healing them from their, all of their maladies and illnesses. And then a crowd forms at the door. Look at verse 33. And all the city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many that were sick of diverse diseases. And cast out many devils. And suffered not the devils to speak. Because they knew him. He heals all manner of diseased and demon-possessed people here with a few mere words. And then at the end of the chapter, in verses 40 through 42, he heals a man with leprosy. Look at verse 40. And there came a leper to him, beseeching him, and kneeling down to him, and saying unto him, If thou wilt, can't, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus moved with compassion, put forth his hand, and touched him, and saith unto him, I will be thou clean. And as soon, and immediately, he, after he had spoken, immediately the leprosy departed from him. And he was cleansed. 
Each of these instances here this morning points us to the, uh, the power and authority of Jesus' words. As he touches and heals these uh, lives that are filled and racked with illness and disease and suffering, he is demonstrating the divine compassion of God for both the sick and both the sinners as well. That, that phrase there in verse 41 where it says, And Jesus moved with compassion. I think that's indicative of this entire narrative of chapter 1 all the way through chapter 16. That Jesus is the embodiment of God being moved with compassion on our lives. He's the embodiment of God's divine compassion for sinners. For people who cannot get their life together even no matter how hard they try. He's moved with compassion and his mission here is to give life. You notice in all these instances is Jesus speaking and they are immediately cleansed. He speaks and life is given into the bones and into the lungs and the hearts of these who are racked with illness. These are life-giving words. Because each of these indisposed individuals have been literally robbed of existence. Either they are infected with an illness or they are attacked by a seizure of, of satanic power. Their life is not really a life. It's a living death here. That is until Jesus speaks. Look at verse 25. I love it. And Jesus rebuked him saying. Using the power of his voice. Verse 42. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately after he had spoken, the leper was cleansed. He was healed. You know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of the same time when Jesus and God the Father spoke together in Genesis 1. At the beginning of creation, they spoke and worlds were formed and life was created. With the power of Jesus' words, life was born. One song kind of represents it in the vapor of God's, of God's breath. Worlds and galaxies took existence. Even now here, as Jesus is speaking here, he is creating life. His words are resurrecting words. He speaks life into these infirmed and indisposed individuals and they are given new life. The devil is torn out of this one who has an unclean spirit. The, the fever goes immediately away out of Simon's mother-in-law. The demon possessed in verse 34, God speaks to them. He silences the devil. I love that phrase in verse 34. He suffered not the devils to speak. He has such power, friends, that he can stop the mouth of the devil. Because his words are more powerful than his. His words are life-giving words, not life-sucking words. They are life-giving words. He has words of resurrection. He speaks and life is created for instant, immediate, straightway cleansing. This is the power of Jesus' healing. He heals freely. You notice that? In all of these healings, he doesn't give them one iota of a thing to do before his healing becomes real. He doesn't say, do this 
incantation. Do this little worship service. Do this little formula. And you will be healed. He heals with the power of his voice that goes forward freely and abundantly. But also, I think what is even amazing, even more amazing, that he heals fully. You notice in all of these instances in this chapter, God's, Jesus' healing words resulted in instantaneous and complete recovery. Look at verse 25. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had torn him and cried with a loud voice, he came out of him. And they were all amazed, insomuch that they questioned among themselves, saying, What thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority commandeth he even the unclean spirits, and they do obey him. Look at verse 40. And there came a leper to him, beseeching him, and kneeling down to him, and saying unto him, If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. Verse 42, And as soon as Jesus had spoken, immediately the leprosy departed from him, and he was cleansed. The leper wasn't given a word of healing, and then he wasn't gradually cleansed over the course of months, or days, or weeks, or years. Simon's mother-in-law is perhaps the best example of this. So look at verse 30. But Simon's wife, wife's mother lay sick of a fever in Anon. That is, immediately they tell him of her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And immediately the fever left her. Immediately the fever left her and she ministered unto him. From fever to ministry in an instant, in a moment, in the power of Jesus' life-giving words, she is immediately healed. He heals fully. He heals freely. The demon-possessed aren't uh, sort of incapacitated after their exorcism. Simon's mother-in-law isn't told she would recover in a few days if she takes a few extra pills or whatever. This leper isn't told that he would get better eventually. They are healed in an instant. They are healed in a moment. Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers, he says, Christ's cures are always complete. When the great physician restores the soul, he restores it completely. Such is what we learn here. Such is the the great hope and truth of our gospel. That you and I are right now not in a process of quote unquote being justified. You and I are justified right now in the eyes of God. You know what that means? We have Jesus' righteousness on us. Not in part, but the whole. Not partially justified, not partially righteous. You and I, if we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are completely righteous in the eyes of God right here, right now as we sit in this church. We are instantly justified. Our souls are instantly cleansed of all the garbage that we have lived our lives with. When we believe in Jesus, this is what he does. He heals in an instant. He saves in an instant. In a moment, his words are forever ours. That he has justified us. And and we can live in that justification as a present reality. Not as some future thing to which we are hoping for. Not as some future thing that we are striving to get on our own. Jesus' 
justification, his declaration of us as righteous is here right now, a present reality we can live in. That's what it means to keep Jesus at the center. That's what it means to be a disciple is keeping the justification that he has wrought for us present in our minds. This is what it means to be sanctified. Being sanctified, becoming like Christ, being conformed to his image, whatever you want to say there, is less about checking a spiritual box to denote your progress in holiness and more about living in the present fact that God, through Christ, has erased your sin on the cross. Past, present, and future sin, he has erased it fully and freely and finally. That's... What it means to be a sanctified Christian is keeping that present reality foremost and first in your minds. The fact that he has taken all of your sufferings, all of your sins, and as it says in Colossians, he has nailed them to the cross. Or it says in in Isaiah and Micah and the other prophets that he has tossed those things behind his back. He has tossed them into the sea of forgetfulness. He has separated them as far as the east is from the west. This is what Jesus has done. He has declared you righteous by those words. And it is our gift that we can put that at the forefront of our minds. That we can believe by faith that he has done this. We are instantly cleansed. One writer says it like this. All carefulness about our sanctification and the way of studied efforts for it. Unless founded on an absolute assurance that it is already ours in Christ will defeat itself. That we have nothing to do but to depend on Christ for it as we depend on him for justification. Such is the life of a Christian. That unless we are absolutely assured of what Jesus has said for us. And unless we are absolutely depending on that for all things we are depending on ourselves. Such as Jesus' words and example to us here this morning. These are my words for you, he says. Believe in my words. Keep my words first and foremost in your life. And from this we learn that Jesus has authority over our eternity. By his alone, our eternal, his word alone, our eternal destinies are secured and assured for us. Not by things that we do, but by his word for us that declares us forgiven and pardoned and justified. His words of redemption and resurrection. That's what secures our eternity. And he is saying here this morning, I have instantly cleansed you. Therefore, you can instantly commit to me, your king, your savior. If we are desirous of strengthening our commitment and devotion to God, our thoughts must run back to Jesus' life-giving words for us. His words of grace and peace and pardon and absolution and justification. Words in actions and accomplishments of Jesus alone. This is what will drive us into instant and immediate surrender. Knowing that we are immediately and instantly saved at the moment of faith. That he has saved us. Thus we ask, whose words are you believing in? 
Whose words are you trusting in? Whose words are forming the foundation of your life? Who it has your eternity? Is your eternity up to you? Or is it your eternity in Jesus' hands? In Jesus' words? Have you experienced Jesus' immediate cleansing of your soul? Have you engaged in this commitment to Jesus' mission? I pray that this morning you would do that. You would be struck by the freeness and the fullness of this truth and be driven to commit to knowing that this cleansing is yours for free and it is yours right now and you can live in it right at this moment. Let us pray.